Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Let's go right into treatment, because that, I think, is the most important part of this roundtable, uh, especially in the United States. For the patient that comes into your emergency room that's tested positive, that's symptomatic, however, no signs of ARDS yet, does not need to get intubated yet. What are your treatment strategies at this point besides isolation? You want me to talk about that or? Sure, yeah, <laughs> jump right in. Sure, um, so the um, patients tend to fall into, and, and I'd really love to also hear um, what the Italian experience has been like for you guys. For us, we've seen that people either seem to be, um, you know, really quite acute coming in from home, short of breath, and decompensate quickly in the emergency department and are intubated and sent to the ICU. Um, and then other patients are, you know, they're, they're somewhat mild, but a little bit hypoxemic, admitted into the ward, and then mm -hmm. many of them do just fine. And then some of them, um, and it's really difficult to predict which ones, will decompensate at usually around over 12 hours with a rapid increase in work of breathing and hypoxemia and are intubated. Um, so, um, is that kind of what you guys are, I guess, seeing? Yeah. Can I tell you the situation up today in Padua General Hospital? We have 82 patients on the ward, COVID positive, and 24 patients in ICU, mm -hmm. intubated. Mm. We had uh, seven deaths uh, since then. Uh, 43 patients have been discharged so far since the 23rd of February. So this is the situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for those ward patients, you know, from what I've read and seen, um, early goals of care discussions, in case they do go that uh, unfortunate route where they have the uh, acute worsening, fluid sparing resuscitation. Are you all doing empiric antibiotics up front? No. Yeah. No. Oh. Some so, patients, if they have <laughs> bacteria pneumonia, of course, they're using some antibiotics. If not, mm -hmm. no. Um, it, it sort of depends on our suspicion if we like we have our um, we have our diagnosis of thinking this is COVID and it looks like a viral pneumonitis, then we're not necessarily treating with empiric antibiotics. Mm -hmm. um, the patients who get critically ill um, in the ICU will start or patients who are decompensating will start antibiotics in case there is a co-infection. We're not really seeing co-infection when we mm -hmm. um, get sputum samples, um, unlike where we saw with influenza, a lot of uh, staph co-infection. I'm curious if, um, if you guys are seeing anything different with your sputum samples. Of course, we're reticent to do any aerosolizing procedures, so we're not doing bronchoscopy, mm -hmm. but um, like inline suctioning um, when we're needing to do that anyway for some um, pulmonary toilet, and um, we've had some issues with endotracheal tubes um, clot, uh, uh, obstructing with really sick, thick secretions, but we're able to, we're going to suction anyway. We may as well mm -hmm. send a sample and a patient to evaluate for a, a ventilator associated pneumonia or just a co-infection. That's a great point about the aerosolization. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Are you avoiding non-invasive uh, positive pressure like CPAP and uh, high flow nasal cannula and doing early intubation? Are you giving those a chance? So right now, what we're doing, we have the, we have the ventilators. Um, and I don't know if in some areas, if they don't have ventilators mm-hmm. in this, are you going to use the other adjunctive oxygen delivery devices? For, but for us, we're trying, we're really trying to avoid aerosolizing mm-hmm. um, of anything. So we're not using nebulized medications. We're using if we're going to deliver albuterol, so it can be difficult an asthmatic or a COPD patient with a exacerbation, we would normally give them nebulized medications. So we're using MDI with um, a spacer. Um, and then we are not deli- using um, high rates of flow. So we're not using non-invasive positive pressure, which can be challenging in a patient maybe with obstructive sleep apnea, or we think that there's a heart failure exacerbation component or a COPD exacerbation. But in general, we're trying to avoid that. And we're not using heated high flow at high flow rates. But on no data whatsoever, we're maybe trying to limit the flow to less than maybe 20 or 30 liters. Um, but again, when these patients start requiring more oxygen, they tend to just decompensate mm-hmm. and require intubation. We haven't really had people that we've been able to manage on mm-hmm. uh, like non-rebreather masks for long. Once they require non-rebreather, they tend to just desat and we um, intubate them. Just so the, let me do yeah. one piece of information that so far, VVECMO doesn't look like a, a, an option. Yeah, that was going to be our next big topic. So why is that? What are we seeing that VVECMO doesn't work? Because so far they've, uh, according to our ICU people, the better results with pronation, mm-hmm. so moving the, into the bed, and also because patients are not hypercapnic, mm-hmm. but are mostly hypoxemic, and so VVECMO doesn't look to be the better choice, the best choice. So with proning, and this is a question I received from several pulmonologists in the New York area, when do you start proning? Is there a specific PEEP level uh, that you wait for? Um, is earlier better? Because it does take quite a, quite a bit of resources if you have a number of patients that are prone. Yeah, these patients seem to do, um, and talking with my Evergreen um, colleagues, so that was the hospital that has um, had the highest volume of, of COVID patients um, with the outbreak at our nursing home, and they are, they've done some phenomenal work. And there's also a really nice um, one-pager created by Nick Mark um, going through um, just kind of really nice synopsis of the disease and management. And these patients, that what they've but they've told me um, as well, because they have um, a, a much higher number of ICU patients right now, um, that the patients really respond well to proning. And so using just sort of the standard approach of a, optimizing PEEP and sedation and proning with a P to F less than 150 and doing doses of 16 hours and then continuing to prone until you have improvement in oxygenation. Um, but they seem to do well with um, higher PEEP. Um, and then, uh, um, so well with the higher PEEP, the proning, the restrictive fluid strategy, and then some adjunctive mm-hmm. therapies and avoiding steroids mm-hmm. have been sort of the therapies. And then considering um, uh, VV ECMO for refractory hypoxemia. But again, a lot of them mm-hmm. are, like he, you said, um, are really responsive to the PEEP and proning. Yeah. So Dr. Chang, regarding ECMO, have you been called to consider uh, a number of patients for ECMO? Have you, have you put anyone on ECMO? And... Uh, in line with all of that, um, should we be considering VA ECMO, VA ECMO for any of these patients since there seems to be this uh, really kind of viral myocarditis picture that, that's been reported? Yeah, I mean, I think Janelle and I were both have been over the last few days talking about 
what our response is. Fortunately, at our hospital right now, we have we don't we have not had anyone that has gone on ECMO. Um, and in part, it was because when we were looking at some of the early data that was coming out of uh, China, we were it was unclear to us what the benefit of ECMO mm-hmm. was going to be in terms of the uh, population of patients that were going to get this. I think we probably had presumed that this was going to be mostly going to be folks who with a lot of uh, comorbidities and, mm-hmm. and and individuals that likely were not going to benefit from a, a survival perspective with uh, ECMO. However, <clears throat> with some more recent data that's been coming out, we've had to revisit our, our indications for it. And in fact, we've just recently had some a regional discussion um, in our area in the Pacific Northwest to sort of revisit this idea of ECMO. And I think what we're starting to see is that um, as long as we have the resources, the staffing and the capability, we certainly are going to be very selective still. Um, what, what may have been relative contraindications probably will become more absolute contraindications, but we are going to um, proceed with offering ECMO for uh, selective patients, typically those that are going to be less than mm-hmm. 60 without significant chronic medical comorbidities. Um, as far as the question of VA ECMO, I think that at least logistically right now, while we, we know that there's patients who go on VA ECMO that sub- subsequently developed a cardiac um, or you know, end up requiring a myocarditis or having cardiac insufficiency that need, that would perhaps benefit from VAV or VA. It's not something that, to be quite honest, we've been able to wrap our head around mm-hmm. in terms of how are we going to logistically be able to plan and do that in terms of um, of the risk benefit ratio. It, it seems like a lot of those patients who go on VA ECMO, um, at least from the early, it, it's unclear to that how many patients are actually really going to benefit and survive mm-hmm. uh, when they have a um, heart failure along with the, uh, the, the respiratory failure. Gino, I don't know what your experience has been with the, the VA ECMO in Italy since you guys have probably seen a lot more critically ill patients. I'd be, be curious to hear what you have to say. Well, a patient uh, very recently, uh, she died today actually on VA ECMO, but she did not, she had a myocarditis. Uh, but apparently the testing for COVID was negative. Hmm. So, so really we don't have experience for VA ECMO in COVID positive patients with myocarditis. A surgeon uh, out of New York City, a cardiac surgeon was asking, is there any role for Impella or other MCS devices in patients that develop a myocarditis picture? That was another thing that we had been discussing of uh, (laughs) the logistics of doing things for these patients is incredibly challenging. So for example, if we are going to um, uh, employ ECMO, we would be doing a bedside cannulation within a COVID ICU only using bedside ultrasound. Um, So the to think about how we are going to do this to put in an impella, that would mm-hmm. mean a utilizing a cath lab, negative airflow, terminal clean, it would change everything. Yeah. And so really, um, like even you, we don't even send these patients to CT. So um, I think that really limits um, like thinking about how are you going to um, avoid nosocomial spread of COVID is a really important consideration. Yep. Great. So the other treatments that everyone's trying, since we don't have great data, we obviously don't have randomized controlled trials to test out these new investigational drugs. The most common one that we're hearing about is uh, remdesivir. Um, So how often are you guys using it? Uh, Who's eligible for it? And then how do we get it? Uh, It's really only compassionate use. What does that mean? And 
how do you go about getting it for your patients? This is a very good question. I just would like to add that the timing of using mm -hmm. this drug for me is uh, crucial. And I think if you use on a compassionate model, you know, when you think that there is nothing else that you can do, I think that they are probably running for failure, but I'm not a, a, specialist, in, in, a specialist for COVID, mm. but just the perception that I had, talk with colleagues inside the hospital, not only in Padua, but also uh, outside, outside Padua. I think the timing for using those drugs uh, probably plays a role. Yeah. So, um, um, most of our patients were trying to get them um, on chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir. Um, and part of the um, issue with remdesivir, there was there's an ongoing trial, um, but they need to not have a, um, a renal insufficiency. And so that's when then we've been trying to apply for potential compassionate use, which is really challenging. I, I'm not sure we've been successful um, with that, but the other patients that are hospitalized and, and ill um, mm. uh, initiating remdesivir um, early um, and then discontinuing it once the patient is clinically sort of like out of the woods would be mm. the plan just for conservation of something that we think may, that we um, maybe a benefit and are um, leaning pretty heavily on our infectious disease colleagues for um, kind of uh, kind of like making recommendations mm -hmm. and communicating with each other. There's been a, a lot of uh, collaboration trying to determine what do we think is potentially working and how do we assess which patients to use this in. Mm -hmm. um, so um, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of hard work from infectious disease. So that's a good point. So you start it early before they get intubated, before they reach that critical phase. And then my understanding is a recommendation is you're supposed to give a 10 day course, but you're stopping it as soon as they're out of the woods, just for conservation purposes. Is that correct? Well, some uh, that it's, it's really like not clear um, yeah. what, what the duration should be. And I'm not sure that it's necessarily something we'd say is standardized mm -hmm. and um, uh, but there is like, you know, a thought of should you, how long do you continue this? What, you know, what kind of course should you do um, and uh, not to, you know, over overutilize something in a patient mm -hmm. that's improving, but not prematurely terminate it. So um, it's it's really it's not clear um, yeah. what the what the best course to, is. <laughs> and you had mentioned plaquenil, uh, hydroxychloroquine. There are some rumors, really, that it works as a prophylactic drug uh, in high risk patients or in healthcare workers. Um, but again, obviously, we don't have any data to back that up. Uh, any experience, anything that you've seen so far? Yeah, I didn't think so. I've uh, heard from many patients and family members that are going to get it filled at pharmacies just to have it just in case. And that, again, oh. it's one of those things that we just don't have, have data for. Maybe we shouldn't do that because then we're not yeah. going to actually have it available in the hospital. Exactly. Be another thing that we would run out in analogous to our PPE uh, crisis. Yeah. Other drugs that I was asked about... Um, uh, by many of the pulmonologists and thoracic surgeons that submitted questions. Uh, Coletra, which is uh, lapinavir, ritonavir, it's an HIV medication. Tocalizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody for rheumatoid arthritis. Um, you'd mentioned trying those when patients can't get remdesivir. Uh, what have your experiences been so far? I personally don't have any experience using them and where we haven't been using them in the University of Washington yet. I think that on principle, it's a little bit um, worrisome to use tocilizumab in the absence of mm -hmm. an antiviral. Um, but there, um, I mean, there are some 
there's some data um, with some limitations looking at the use of um, tocilizumab uh, and, and, and also the use of steroids. It's, it's, I mean, the, the data are so limited mm -hmm. and uh, there really isn't a lot of um, a, a lot of guidance, but we personally, I have not uh, had uh, any of our patients, we haven't used that for any of ours here. So I don't know if anybody else has, or if you're doing that in Italy. What's the usual cocktail in Italy? Yeah, they've been used uh, at the beginning with some controversial results. So from my point of view, it's impossible to draw mm -hmm. And I think that it's important also to, um, like these are investigational drugs and we don't know the benefit or the harm. So it's really important that we aren't introducing harm um, and really focusing on excellent critical care and the principles that we know really work. So when we think about lung protective ventilation and um, attention to appropriate titration of PEEP, proning, um, and uh, like giving them time, um, it is interesting too. One thing I uh, neglected to mention is the compliance actually seems to be quite high um, and we're not running into as many issues with um, uh, concerns for barotrauma like we do with influenza ARDS. And it's probably another reason why um, we have less patients that we feel pushed to go onto VV ECMO because we're, we're able to maintain like, like safer plateau pressures. Mm -hmm. So really just um, paying attention to good critical care and uh, mitigating uh, like other risks, right? Other infections, clotting, all the other things that we mm. think of for um, our, our critically ill patients and, 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 and maximizing good supportive care, giving them time. So in regards to uh, cardiothoracic surgeons out there, besides the potential use of ECMO, uh, what are some other situations we may be called for? Is anyone seeing any pleural effusions? Are there any concerns for empyema? This is a question that came out of, uh, out of a surgeon from Arkansas. Not really. No. Well, uh, I, I don't have too much experience uh, with COVID-19 here in Hong Kong simply because we don't have that many cases mm -hmm. right now. But we could refer back to our experience of SARS. And back then, uh, at least in public hospitals, um, effusions and pyemas were fairly rare. We did have a small series of uh, pneumothorax, and this usually uh, occurs in the more severe cases, especially the ones who are in ICU who may have had some positive mm -hmm. pressure ventilation. And our experience from 2003 with SARS is that these cases tend not to require surgical intervention. Um, uh, they either invariably have a poor course by the time they have uh, pneumothorax resulting from the coronavirus, or uh, ultimately they resolve just with simple conservative management of chest strains. So in case there is anybody out there who does encounter anybody with pneumothorax with COVID-19, uh, it's probably going to be managed ultimately conservatively, I mm -hmm. think. Great. Um, I can add something regarding yeah. the situation of solid organ transplantation in Italy mm -hmm. at the moment because the entire program is completely collapsing because, mm -hmm. of course, all the ICU uh, fully dedicated to COVID positive patients. The ability to identify donors is really disappearing. Right. So, at the moment, we are completely blocked as far as solid organ transplantation is concerned. So for the rare patient that may need to go to the OR that does have COVID-19, a uh, question um, that came out of California from a surgeon is, do pathologists, do our scrub nurses need to 
handle the tissue, infected tissue anyway, if, uh, if the patient's getting a lung resection for whatever reason. Uh, is there any chance for infection from that route? Any thoughts? Yeah, I think, again, again, referring back to our experience in 2003 with SARS, is that the actual resected tissue uh, just needs usual mm -hmm. common sense uh, precautions. The, the main uh, risk during the entire operating room procedure, obviously, is the intubation and mm -hmm. extubation. And anybody in proximity of the upper airways at the time of the, the, the intubation and extubation does require N95, full PPEs, eye protection, the whole, whole works. We usually uh, wrap the patient's heads in a plastic bag, of course, the usual precautions. And I think that brings up a really important point that um, as hospitals um, in areas that haven't had the surge um, hit yet um, to really consider early um, stopping or delaying elective surgeries. We've had some patients that it's, it can be very, just like you know, said, it's hard to know who mm -hmm. is actually shedding the virus and you can have asymptomatic spread. Um, and then we've um, had some patients um, develop respiratory symptoms that maybe had some preoperatively and they were coming in for their elective mm -hmm. cases and now have COVID and they're in the hospital. So like trying to limit the patients that are coming into your hospital, um, I think is really important because then you end up um, with healthcare um, personnel exposure and it's a, a risk to losing your workforce. Um, and then also heavily screening patients who are coming in and limiting anyone entering into your hospital is, is really important. So we have um, uh, kind of set up a screening process and only um, using a couple of entry points for the hospital um, and limiting any visitors um, basing, based on specific indications for when someone could come in and visit. So just decreasing the number of people in the hospital just to try to keep your healthcare workers from getting sick. Because as soon as you're losing your healthcare workers, you're losing your work. It's, it's, that's really a critical piece. Mm -hmm. And something yeah, in Padua, General Hospital, for example, all the outpatient clinic have been closed down mm -hmm. so far. And of course, as uh, mentioned by Dr. Badilak, also visitors are uh, not allowed to come into mm -hmm. the hospital. One, yeah. yeah, one of the things that, you know, the, the University of Washington has done is there's a lot of obvious uh, increased interest among the public about getting tested and what should I do about symptoms and in an effort to sort of decrease the run into the, to the hospitals and the ambulatory clinics. They've, we've really tried to start using more telemedicine and um, calls to try to screen for it and provide advice that way. And so we've really increased the use of telemedicine um, within our, our system by our, our primary care doctors and, and our um, uh, primary care providers in terms of trying to help the public uh, address what's increasingly becoming more and more concerning to them. And, and that's another way that uh, we can sort of protect sort of the the essential personnel in the hospitals is by trying to decrease mm. that that uh, that aspect, and so we've we've seen a really high increase in that use as well. How are you handling the blood shortage uh, in Italy, Dr. Gerosa? Sorry, say that again, please. How are you handling the blood shortage in Italy uh, since obviously people aren't donating? Very very good question. Uh, this uh, shortage was striking a couple of uh, weeks ago. Now, you know, on TV, there is a lot of uh, advertisement to ask people to come to the hospital and to donate uh, blood. And uh, these are uh, slightly increasing again. So mm -hmm. we have this shortage, but hopefully in the upcoming weeks, we should be able to sort it out. Right. I think we will end on 
one uh, deeper comment from you, Dr. Jarosa. You're essentially uh, can go back in time right now since you're about you know, 11 to 14 days ahead of us. What would you tell people in the United States on the other side of the world right now as we're just starting to see the extent of this pandemic? Only three words, stay at home. <laughs> Don't get it together, stay at home. That's the best message I can deliver to you. I think we can all agree with that. And on that note, to all the healthcare workers out there, please stay safe, avoid elective procedures, and uh, be careful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTS Net by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.